Good morning, College Park. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 3 and verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Joe, thank you for that really kind introduction. Uh, Allison and I have loved being here for the last year or so. We've been with College Park. We relocated from the south, from Birmingham, Alabama, um, and we survived our first Indiana winter with uh, not that many tears. So we, um, we've had a great time. Um, and we've really loved being with this church. We have a brand new baby, seven weeks old. Her name's Gwyneth. She's delightful, um, but she sleeps like a seven-week-old baby. And so I don't know if this camera shows the bags under my eyes, but um, if I forget my words or stumble in the middle of sentences, you'll, that's why, I promise. Um, and so we've been here about a year, uh, working community life, and I'm so, so grateful to be part of College Park. Even though they made me put on a coat and tie to preach, uh, it's a small price to pay. We are glad to be a part of this church. So uh, pray with me as we get started. God, it is such a privilege to be able to worship you with your people here on Sunday morning. Um, you are a big and beautiful God. You are the most glorious being in all the creation, and we're so grateful that you have brought us to see you and to know you. God, you've made us citizens of heaven, and we don't deserve that, Lord. And so I pray as we look at this passage today to see what it has to teach us about that citizenship, that you would encourage us, um, you would open our eyes to see things we need to see, hear things we need to hear. I pray that you would speak through me, that you would use me not to uh, point any attention to myself, but to direct all attention and all glory to you, our King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A judge's gavel is a symbol of a redefined reality. So the gavel falls and a prisoner becomes a free man. The gavel falls and an orphan now has a family. There's a gavel falling behind the pronouncement, I now pronounce you man and wife. The judge's gavel is a symbol that an old reality has ceased to exist and a new one has come to be. With no transition, no gradual change, one stops and the other starts right in that moment. Many things about the Christian life work in that same way. We may not know the exact second that we became a Christian, but if you are a Christian today, there was a moment when the gavel fell and your life changed. So the doctrine of regeneration means the gavel falls and a dead soul comes to life. The doctrine of justification means the gavel falls and a condemned sinner is declared righteous. 
The doctrine of adoption means the gavel falls and a spiritual orphan is now part of the family of God. In the same way today, we're going to talk about um, the naturalization that happens to us spiritually when we become Christians. See, when we become Christians in the same way, the gavel falls and we now move from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's son. Colossians 1.13 says that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We become, at the moment of salvation, citizens of heaven. And that's a huge, huge deal. Um, Citizenship is at the core of this passage. It's in uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. It's also found in the book of Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 27. Um, And these passages are actually kind of the bookends of Paul's argument in this letter. So if you would turn there, keep a hand on Philippians 3, turn to Philippians 1, verse 27. See, these passages share a huge percentage of the same words and the same ideas. They both have a call to stand firm in the gospel. They both make a contrast between God's enemies and God's people. And even though 127 says... The English translation is only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you look at your footnote, the Greek there is actually something like only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the same root that's found in 320. So this 127 to 30, 317 to 401 are the bookends of a huge body of text that's all about citizenship in heaven. What it means that we have it and what it means to live it out. And so this passage today kind of summarizes and recaps where Paul has gone through these chapters. So we're going to talk a little bit in depth about what it means to be a citizen of heaven. So what changes when our citizenship transfers? And then we're going to look at three marks of a citizen of heaven that Paul draws out in the passage. So what changes when we become a citizen of heaven? There are three big things. The first thing that changes is that when we become citizens of heaven, we come to have a new king. We've already looked at Colossians 1.13. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his son. The city of Philippi, the city that Paul's writing this letter to, was at 800 miles from Rome. And it's in the middle of this big province of Macedonia. So Macedonia had its own government, it had its own ruler who made life and death decisions for its people. But Philippi was a Roman colony, and that meant that their king was actually Caesar. They answered directly to him. So even though they were in their province, they tried to be on good terms with the province. If it ever came to a conflict between the province and Rome, they were siding with Rome. And if they ever got in legal trouble in their province, they could appeal out to Rome for a new trial. So Caesar was their king, not the governor of the province. In the same way, when we become citizens of heaven, even though we still live in the provinces around us, we live in our nations, we live in our cultures, we live in our own little set of desires and wants and thoughts, our king isn't the governor of those provinces. Our king is Jesus, the king of heaven. And so if it ever comes to a conflict between our provinces around us and our king, we side with him. So citizenship means we have a new king. The second thing that citizenship means is that it means we have a new set of privileges. The Philippians, because they were Roman citizens, had privileges that the province didn't have. They paid lower taxes, so they had economic benefits. 
they had uh, more legal rights and protections. There were things that couldn't be done to them because of who they were. And they could vote in more elections. They could hold land more easily. They had privileges that came with being citizens of Rome. And the same thing is true for us. When we become citizens of heaven, we are adopted into all the good things that God has ever promised for his people now apply to us. So we're legally adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are um, promised forgiveness, justification. We're cleansed from our sin. And we're given the assurance that we're going to inherit the new creation one day. We inherit the earth as part of the privilege of being a citizen of heaven. So it comes with a set of privileges. And then third, being a citizen of heaven means that we have a new set of responsibilities. One commentator said that the Philippians would have seen it as so uh, big a deal that they had their Roman citizenship. That would have been such a great thing to them that they would have seen part of their lives as on a mission to spread the culture and influence of Rome into the world around them. Their Roman citizenship meant so much that they were willing to sacrifice to spread Rome into the world. And so they would have paid to maintain the highway that connected their city to the empire. Uh, If anyone kind of agitated against Rome, caused any trouble, they would have put a stop to it because that was part of their responsibilities as Roman citizens. In the same way for us, when we become citizens of heaven, we adopt the responsibilities as well as the privileges of heaven. Um, I think that most of you guys in here know the Lord's Prayer, and so I'm going to gamble on this. I'm going to say the first couple lines, and then I'm going to point to you, and we're going to say the next couple lines together. So, Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That's good. You do know it. Great. Glad. So, that's the responsibility of a citizen of heaven. Jesus prayed, God, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is being done perfectly in heaven right now. He is perfectly obeyed up there in everything, in every way. As citizens of heaven on earth, we're seeking for that kingdom to come, for that same obedience to grow here on earth. So there's a set of responsibilities that comes with being a citizen of heaven, just as we have a new king and new privileges. So with that in mind, let's look at this passage because Paul, in these verses, brings out three major marks of a citizen of heaven. Just to let you know where we're going, we're going to start kind of in the middle of the passage and work our way to the edges. So don't get anxious if you think I've missed something. Uh, If I've missed something at the end, you can get mad at me, but bear with me to the end. Uh, and then we're also going to spend more, way more time on the first point than on the others. So if you're time conscious or you're taking notes, don't start to get anxious if we're way in and we're still working on the first one. The other two are shorter. So with that in mind, let's look at three marks of a citizen of heaven. Mark 1, citizens of heaven cling to the cross of King Jesus. Paul gives us the photographic negative of this in verses 18 to 19. Let me read those. He says, For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul paints a portrait of enemies, not of the throne of Christ, not of the crown of Christ or the work of Christ. 
enemies of the cross of Christ. I think that's really important. And by looking at his portrait of enemies of the cross, we can see the photographic negative, what it means to cling to the cross of King Jesus instead. So clinging to the cross involves three pursuits. The first pursuit, clinging to the cross, means pursuing a pleasure higher than our appetites. It means pursuing a pleasure higher than our appetites. So Paul says in verse 19, for enemies of the cross, their God is their belly. That doesn't mean that they have an idol set up to their belly somewhere or that they pray to it before a meal. It means that they follow whatever their appetites dictate for them to do. Um, Some obvious examples probably come to mind when we think of this. We think of rampant greed, people who just hoard things and hoard things for themselves. Or we think of uh, substance abuse, so people who try to who drown their sorrows or just chase one high or something like that one after another. Um, we think of lust, people who indulge in sexual immorality, pornography, things like that. And those are following the dictates of our appetites. But in Romans 16:18, Paul uses the exact same language, the serving their bellies language, to describe people who pick fights and who put legalistic obstacles in the way of Christians. See, it it can feel good. It can feel good to hoard up a bunch of money for yourself. It can feel good to, uh, to get drunk. It can feel good to do things like that for a moment. And in the same way, it can feel good to mock someone on Facebook or Twitter. You know, it can feel good to kind of circle up and tell a joke on the guy in your workplace that nobody likes. Or to kind of huddle up around other women and say, you know what I heard about her? You know, this gossip and anger and slander are actually indulging that appetite just the same. Self-righteousness is a form of self-indulgence. So saying that I am building up my own pride is just as dangerous and it's just as big a deal as indulging in whatever appetite, whatever craving I feel like I have. So the legalist and the libertine both follow their appetites. Citizens of heaven don't do that. We leave those pleasures behind. We say no to those appetites, and rather we pursue God. See, Psalm 1611 says that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. God has created us. He's wired us to know and see and savor and delight in him. He's the most beautiful thing in the universe, and he's made us to see and respond to that, to worship him, to walk in obedience to him, to please him. And even he's wired us to enjoy the creation. It's okay to to eat. It's okay to have relationships. It's okay to have fun uh, under gratitude to God. He's made us to do that, to enjoy the creation. But that's all meant to be under um, under finding pleasure in him above everything else. And so clinging to the cross means saying no to those appetites and pursuing a pleasure that's greater than that, pursuing the pleasure of knowing God himself. Pursuit number two, clinging to the cross means pursuing a glory higher than ourselves. In verse 19, Paul says that these enemies of the cross, they glory in their shame. Now, I want you to imagine with me uh, that I'm submitting my own candidacy for the athlete of the year or athlete of the decade award. I'm not sure that such an award exists, but we're going to pretend. And so I write a letter to the committee and I say, dear committee, here are the reasons why I think you should consider me for the athlete of the decade award. 
I have busted my nose by failing to catch a basketball, a baseball, and a frisbee. Um, I've been out jumped by a woman to lose a frisbee tournament. Um, my high school tennis team created a special category because they felt too bad to kick me off the team. Uh, I wasn't good enough for junior varsity. Uh, these are all true, unfortunately. This is an exercise in trust, all right? I'm letting, I'm opening myself up. Um, so, and so I list these on and on and on. And then I conclude, I say, for these reasons and more, I confidently believe that I deserve this award more than Michael Phelps, more than LeBron James, more than anyone else. Sincerely yours, Joseph Ray. That's preposterous, isn't it? So I wouldn't have a chance of winning an Athlete of the Decade Award under the best of circumstances. But if I submit myself for that award based on the most embarrassing moments in my athletic career, it's lunacy. It's insane. Paul says that that's that's the exact thing he's talking about here. This is what it means to glory in shame, to hold up something that should be embarrassing and say, God, aren't you proud of me for this? So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul has to address a church that says, look at our Christian liberty. We have this guy, he's living with his father's wife as a husband. Isn't that great? We're preaching the gospel. He's doing whatever he wants. Paul says, no, you have to put a stop to that. That's not something to boast in. Or in Luke 18, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So these two men go into the temple and the Pharisee kind of wanders around and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these people around me, especially that tax collector over there. I fast, I tithe. Aren't you proud of me? And we hear the subtext. I know I am. That's glorying in shame. That's holding up something that you should be embarrassed about. And Jesus says he doesn't go home justified. The tax collector does. See, it's wrong to glory even in our morality, even in our acts of righteousness, because Isaiah 64, 6 says they're like filthy rags before God. There's a Charlie Brown character named Pigpen. If you know him, he's constantly filthy. That's kind of his thing. Is he, has this, he kind of raises this dust cloud around him everywhere he walks. Uh, everything he touches gets dirty. He even makes a snowman at one point. He starts with this pristine white snow, and it comes out looking like the sludge that's plowed off the side of the roads. You know, everything he touches is dirty because he's filthy. And uh, that's kind of lighthearted, but that's the image. That's what Isaiah is saying about our righteous deeds. See, because we're prideful, because we're prone to build our own kingdom and boast in ourselves, everything that we do, even the good moral things that we do, can be done in pride and are actually filthy rags compared to the glory of God. That's why in Philippians 3, earlier in this chapter, Paul lists this huge Jewish resume, and then he says, I count all of this as rubbish, it's waste, it's garbage compared to the worth of knowing Christ. He refuses to glory in his own accomplishments because I'd be glorying in shame. So citizens of heaven, rather than glorying in shame, what do we glory in? Philippians 3.3 says we glory in Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. That means Paul says, I'm in absolute dependence in everything I say and do on Jesus' work for me. It's not anything I've done. It's not any freedom I have. It's not any morality I have. It's not any accomplishment I've made. My life hinges, my life is founded only on the work that he has done for me. So glorying in Christ means that I devote everything about me, I devote my entire life to making Jesus look good, not myself. 
So citizens of heaven cling to the cross by glorying in Christ. We pursue a glory higher than ourselves. And then the third pursuit, clinging to the cross means pursuing a life beyond this one. See, in verse 19, Paul says, he kind of summarizes these enemies of the cross. He says, their minds are set on earthly things. That means that they devote all their time and effort and attention and energy to the 70-ish years they have here on earth. So they might build up uh, wealth for themselves so they can have comfort or security or pleasure. They might strive after popularity, just doing things to become famous and to become liked so people will think they're great. They may build up this resume of accomplishments so they have pride in themselves. They build up these earthly things, none of which survive them after death. See, Paul says in verse, at the beginning of verse 19, he says, These people's end, the end of this life, is destruction. Living for this life means dying in the next. This is the language of hell, and this is really serious. Paul is saying that if we live for this life, what that means is that we're putting something earthly on the throne of our hearts. Uh, when I was a kid, I have two younger brothers. We played this game called King of the Hill. And most of you probably know it. You designate something as the hill. You know, it could be that chair over there. That's the hill. And my goal is to do anything I can to be the king, to sit in that chair and not to let anyone else get in that chair. And so it's pushing, pulling, fighting, all that kind of stuff. Anything so I can become king of the hill because there can only be one king. In that same way, there's only one seat in our hearts. There's only one throne that it has. And that's either going to be occupied by God or it's going to be occupied by something else, by security, pleasure, comfort, popularity, pride. And if we live our lives with something else on that throne, this passage says that that's sin, that we're living in sin, and that we'll end our lives apart from God, just like we've lived them the whole time apart from God. Citizens of heaven are willing to die to this life so that we can have the next because we have 70-ish years in this life, maybe, if we're lucky, maybe a few more, maybe less. But this life ends, and what we're living for is the eternal life beyond this one. A life that goes on for decades and centuries and millennia. It never, ever, ever ends. And, you know, we, we have things in this life. We make money, we buy stuff, we um, enjoy friendship, that kind of thing. But... If we're going to invest in the next life, we have to be willing to die to those things, to say those don't govern us. So if it means that we take a lower-paying job because it gives us more time to serve our families, we do it. We let go of money. If it means we have to have a hard, unpopular conversation because it just needs to happen, then we let go of that popularity. We die to that because all that is part of gaining the approval of God, the inheritance of the new creation, all the benefits that are part of being a citizen of heaven. So citizenship in heaven means pursuing the life beyond this one, investing in the life beyond this one. Some of you here today um, are probably Christians who are struggling to cling to the cross in some way. You have some appetite that feels really strong that you want to indulge, or you have some idea of glory that's really attractive to you that you want. There's something in this life that you're afraid to let go of, afraid to lose. And I would encourage you in this to think about that thing 
Think about what you might gain for yourself if you hold on to that for 70-ish years. And then, by contrast, what you stand to gain in eternity if you're willing to let go of it. Um, It can feel hard because these things are precious to us, but I would encourage you, talk to God about repenting from that thing, about letting your hands open and let him take it away from you. Um, Talk to some Christian you trust about walking with you through this. It's not worth it. Whatever it is, it's not worth risking eternity to hang on to. And there may be some of you here who, as I've talked about these things, clinging to the cross, you think, this doesn't describe me at all. You know, I live by my appetites, you know, one way or another. I have my ideas of glory, and I like that. I'm hanging on to those. Um, If you're here, I would ask you, think about the cost of that in the same way. It may make for a nice life in these few decades, but it costs eternity. It might mean eternal death for you. And so I would ask you, think about that. Pray about that. Um, Talk to God about it, and talk to someone at College Park. We, the staff, would love to talk with anyone who um, feels like this doesn't describe them and maybe they want it to, maybe they're thinking about it, they have questions. Please find me, find one of the staff. We'd be happy to talk with you about it. So that's Mark 1. The citizens of heaven cling to the cross of King Jesus. Mark 2. The citizens of heaven cling to the promise of King Jesus. This is found in verses 20 and 21. They say, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If clinging to the cross sounds hard, that's because it is. It is hard. It's impossible, actually. It means dying to my own appetites and ideas of glory. It means that every day when I get a chance to glorify myself or to glorify God, I'm going to sacrifice myself for the sake of something, sake of someone else. You know, I, I have a wife and I have a brand new daughter. Um, this feels really real to me. You know, there are things that I would like to do, things that I have an idea of glory in that I just can't do anymore um, because of these relationships. And they're wonderful and I choose them, but it's still a dying. Um, clinging to the cross means dying to the world And that's actually impossible apart from the work of God. And uh, so that is, the Christian life um, will look sacrificial and may even look foolish to someone who's living just for these 70-ish years we have. So if there's already suffering and problems enough in the world, and a Christian is also going, he's going to refuse to accumulate uh, wealth to make things more comfortable. He's going to refuse to pursue pleasures that make us forget about these things. He's going to refuse to build up a reputation. Then we're throwing away. You know, we're throwing out the 70-ish years we have on folly. And Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So clinging to the cross, part of that is um, refusing to hang on to this life. But the promise of God is that this life isn't it. This life isn't the end. See, verse 20 says that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not waiting for him to, I don't know, like if you've seen in any old cartoon ever, kind of pluck us out of our bodies so we can float around as spirits in some little cloud land. That sounds miserable. That's not heaven and that's not what we're talking about. Um, we're awaiting for a savior to come back and finish the work that he started when he rose from the dead in the resurrection. 
See, everyone else who has ever risen from the dead in the Bible died again. Um, the widow's son that Elijah raised, he died again. Uh, Jairus's daughter in Luke died again. Uh, Lazarus, John 11, huge famous resurrection story. He died again. That's because they rose from the dead back into a world that's still under the curse of creation. So even though they came back once, they aged, they sickened, they weakened, and they died. There's a curse over all the world. It's part of the curse of sin. Romans 8 says that the world is groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's groaning like a woman in labor under this curse. We have earthquakes, we have disease, we have suffering, famine, drought. The creation isn't the way it's supposed to be. This world isn't yet fixed. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't die again. It's been about 2,000 years since his resurrection. He still has the body that he had when he rose from the dead. And millennia from now, thousands and thousands of years from now, he's going to keep having that same body. He's still going to be in it. Um, That's because he was raised as the first fruit of the new creation. That's the promise of King Jesus. It's the promise that God is going to come back and he's going to remake the world without sin, suffering, death, decay, anything like that. He's going to remake the world to be incorruptible and perfect. And if uh, we're his people, for his citizens, the citizens of heaven, God's going to do that same thing to our bodies, just like Jesus now has a glorious body, so will we one day. We'll live in a world without any of those things. We'll live in a world uh, that's just full of joy, full of life. It's the creation as it's meant to be. That's the new creation. That's what God has promised us. And that's what citizens of heaven are going to inherit. Some of you may need to cling to that promise today to give you hope in suffering. See, you hear that the creation groans and you groan with it. There's something that you're under that just feels like such a weight. Um, It could be a diagnosis. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be some sin struggle that just weighs you down. That's going to be the way of this life. God does give us comfort here, but that's all going to end in the new creation. That's all going to end one day. And so you cling to the promise for that hope. Some of you today may need to cling to that promise to give you courage. Because like we talked about earlier, there's something that you're afraid to let go of. There's something in this life that just seems too precious to lose. But this promise means that this life is going to fade. It's going to go away. The next life is going to endure forever. And so there may be something that you do need to let go of because you stand to gain something so much greater in the new creation. And when you meditate on God's promises about this, when you meditate and think about what God is going to do, it can give us courage to let go of the things in this world, to let go of earthly things that we can hold on and hope for the new creation. That's Mark 2. I told you it would go a lot faster. So Mark 3, the last mark of a citizen of heaven. Citizens of heaven cling to the people of King Jesus So now we're going to move to the verses that frame this passage, the two on the outside, because they're different, but they're related. So let me read both of them. First, 317. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And second, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 
See, clinging to the cross and clinging to the promise, these are acts of faith. And we know that faith is a gift from God. We need God's help to have these things. Clinging to the cross means I'm willing to die to this life that I might live in the next. Clinging to the promise means that my hope isn't in this world. It's in the world to come. And so both of those have our eyes set beyond this life. And that's hard. It can be hard to sustain that life. We need God's spirit and we need God's word to get us through. But God has also given us a third help in doing these things, and that's the help of his people. See, God never saves Christians in isolation. He saves individuals, but he never leaves us alone. All through the New Testament, when God brings people to himself, he brings them into communities. And every time that God speaks to people through the New Testament epistles, um, even if they're written to an individual, they're written to an individual on behalf of churches. He speaks to people corporately. Um, Ephesians 4 says that the church, so the big C church as a whole, and every little expression, the local churches, is a living temple that we're all growing together into a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 says that the church is a body, and the body needs every part functioning properly if it's going to do what it's supposed to do. Um, Our appendix is this tiny little insignificant part of ourselves, but anyone who's had appendicitis knows if your appendix gets infected, if it goes, then unless something major happens, you go too. Uh, you know, we rely on uh, our whole body functioning as it's supposed to. And that applies to Christians as well. We need other Christians if we're going to live a godly life. And these passages, you can see it in the Greek, even uh, they require a body of people. They require a group of people to fulfill them. I'm from the South, like I said, and we have the cultural advantage of the word y'all. So I can speak to a group of people all at once with no confusion. I can say, y'all stand up, and all the y'all over there know they're supposed to stand up. Or y'all come over here, and, you know, they come over here. So y'all gives us extra specificity in the English language. <laughs> and so I think everyone should use it. Uh, these commands are y'all commands in Scripture. So Paul says in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, y'all join together and follow me. And 4.1, he says, y'all stand firm together. So they require a community to fulfill them. They're plural commands. They can't be done alone. And so there are two specific practices, and we're going to close by looking at each of these practices, and we'll be done. So the first practice in verse, chapter 3, verse 17, is that clinging to the people of God means following the faithful. It means following the faithful. Paul says, join together in imitating me, And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, read in isolation, this makes Paul sound a little arrogant, I think. You know, if we just a chapter ago, chapter two, Paul is talking about imitating Jesus, being like him, and now he's kind of drifted to say, Be like me, imitate me. He said, Oh, come on, Paul. He's an apostle, I guess. Maybe you can say that. But he's not actually we have to read Paul in context. He's not being arrogant here. Just a few verses before, in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. So Paul's not saying I'm perfect. I've got it down. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, when he's writing to Timothy, Paul actually says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Not I was chief. I am chief. And so Paul freely admits, he says, chief sinner, Paul of Tarsus right here, 
So he's not saying, I've got it all figured out. I'm perfect. Just do whatever I do. But what he is saying is that Christians, as the people of God, can serve as living, breathing examples of what it means to live in dependence on God. See, we relate to God through his word and through his spirit in prayer. We don't see God. We see his word. We have that with us. We don't see his person, but we do see the people around us. We see saints who have walked with God for 40, 50, 60 years, who have raised children in a godly way, who have worked uh, in a, you know, a non-Christian environment for decades and stayed faithful. People who relate to God through prayer in a way that seems beautiful and we want to emulate. Paul is saying, follow these people. Uh, find them. Look for them. There's tons of them at College Park, you know, just for one example. Seek them out and say, I respect you. I see your walk with God. I want to learn to walk like you walked. Show me what you do. Show me how you relate to God that I can live that way. We're called to follow the faithful who go before us. And I think this can even apply to studying church history. Uh, If you've heard me talk before, you know this is a bit of a pet passion, but um, we have thousands of years worth of writings from and writings about people who have followed God through all kinds of circumstances, circumstances that we can't imagine. You can be discipled, just as you can be discipled from a Christian here. There's a sense in which you can be discipled by Elizabeth Elliot, by George Mueller, by Augustine of Hippo. So we can follow the faithful, the saints who have gone before, like the hymn we just sang, they line the way, retelling triumphs of God's grace. So we follow the faithful. And this also forces us to ask ourselves, is my life worthy of imitation? Am I at a place or am I on track to be at a place one day where I could come come alongside a younger believer and say, follow me. I can't teach you everything. I'm not your savior, but I can show you something of what it means to walk with God. See, everyone in here should be capable of that one day. We should be able to say, you can follow my example, not in everything, but in some things. And so is my life worthy of imitation or am I on track? If you're young, I'm young. Are you on track toward being that saint one day? So practice one is follow the faithful. Practice two in chapter four, verse one, it's stand firm with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Standing firm in Christ means um, kind of planting ourselves with both feet on the rock of his teaching and of his life. So uh, the teachings of Christ, we stand on those. The uh, death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf, we stand on those. The righteousness of Christ on our behalf, we stand on that because that's our rock. That's our foundation. But we can't do this alone. We can't stand alone. We need our brothers and sisters to help us in this. We need to be encouraged when we're struggling. We need to uh, be lifted up when we suffer. We need people speaking truth to us. We need to be called out when we stray. We all have ways that we're prone to do that. We need people who can call us out, who can bring us back to stand firm in Christ. Now, if you, you just have to read verse 1 to see how beautiful this is in Paul's mind. He says, uh, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, so these are his spiritual family. He says, you're my family. I love you. He says, whom I love and long for. Paul misses these people. He's in prison in house arrest in Rome. He misses the Philippians so much. He loves and he longs to be with them. He says, you're my joy and crown. He's so proud of them. He says, I love you. I boast in you. I'm proud that I know you. 
You know, I don't talk to my wife this way enough, let alone my small group, you know? So it's my joy and crown, these people I love and long for, community is a beautiful thing, and we should see it as that. And if we live into it, then we will come to see it as that. And so kind of the question, the last question I'll leave you with is, do I have this community? You know, do I have people in my life who really know me? You know, they don't just know when my dog is sick or my cousin's looking for a job. You know, they know what's going on in my heart. They know the joys and the sorrows and the struggles and the difficulties that I have. They know me well enough to challenge me. They know me well enough to encourage me. Every Christian needs that. And we have plenty of opportunities at College Park if you're looking for that, if you need that connection. We have adult Bible fellowships that meet on Sunday mornings, get to know one another. We have men's and women's Bible studies that meet throughout the week. Um, We have uh, small groups that meet in homes where people really get to know one another and be known in a long-term relational setting. So we have plenty of ways to plug into community. And uh, because I work in community life, I'm going to make a plug for LIVE. LIVE is a spotlight event we do in August. And it's a time where we have a sermon series. So there's teaching from the pulpit about some major aspect of life. But there's also, it circles us up into small groups. And we spend time in small groups digesting this content, working it into our lives, working with God to see it become more real to us. It's an incredible opportunity to connect in community and to grow in God. Uh, my wife, Allison's and my small group was started from Live in August of last year, actually. We've known these people for less than a year, but they are our spiritual family. They've become so close and so dear to us. You know, they've uh, cried with us. They've seen our house not clean, uh, which my wife hates. Uh, they have helped us move and even helped my parents move. Um, they have encouraged us. They've challenged us. They've been so close to us. Um, They are our spiritual family, and I'm deeply grateful for them. And so if you're not in community, if you don't have this, I would say, please, please seek it out. You can find it at College Park. So this is what it means to live as citizens of heaven. The gavel has fallen just as we're adopted, just as we're justified, just as we're regenerate, we're made new. We are naturalized into the kingdom of God. We have a new king. We have new privileges and we have new responsibilities. Citizens of heaven cling to the cross, to the promise, and the people of King Jesus. And we hope and pray that everyone here will do that. Let's pray. King Jesus, you rule all things. You are over the creation. You are powerful enough to do anything and everything that you want. And so we pray now for uh, people who need to know you, that you would bring them to yourself. Um, We pray for people who are struggling to cling to you, that you would help them do that. And if there's anything in our hearts that we need to let go of as individuals or a church, we pray you would help us with that now. We pray you would draw us into community. You would build us up into these brothers and sisters, these sons and daughters of Christ, in a way that we proclaim your glory and proclaim your kingdom to the world. Amen. Well done, Joseph. Let me just keep him up here for a minute. You know, I get to give the benediction. Benediction means good, benediction, good word. 
And that was a good word. And if you need some help, we'll have some people up here that'd be glad to pray with you. And then the benediction, and I love this one. It's at the end of Hebrews, and it's for you, College Park. And Joseph, it's for you as well, young brother in the ministry. Good. And it comes from the end of Hebrews, and it says this. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And the church says, Amen. Thank you for a minute for being with us today.